I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it, where you find it, where you find it. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what it means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode 7 of season 1, featuring special guest Catherine Addington on translation. Today's episode was originally recorded on March 29, 2021. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whippenstock Publishers, who published my book, Folk Phenomenology, Education, Study, and the Human Person. Give us this day, daily prayer for today's Catholic. The Institute for Christian Socialism, building a movement of the ecumenical Christian left. Solidarity Hall, Eden, plus Utopia. Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions. Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for black Catholics. Where Peter is, there is the church and the Juan Diego Network, Catholic audio for Latinos. The featured sponsor for today's episode is Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. All listeners to Folk Phenomenology are entitled to a subscription to Commonweal Magazine for only $9.95, and students and recent graduates get a subscription for free. Be sure to see the show notes for all the links to that special offer, as well as to Commonweal and all the other sponsors of Folk Phenomenology. I would also encourage you to have a look at some of the links to the writing of today's featured guest, Catherine Addington, in Commonweal magazine. There you will find works that she has authored under her own hand and authorship, and also her work as a translator in particular translator of Rafael Aranis. There's a lovely translation titled The Antics of the Turnips, Turning the Smallest Actions into Acts of Love for God. I believe that that translation by Catherine Addington uh, is an important companion text if you want to go a bit deeper into this conversation that you'll hear today. I'm also a big fan of her very careful a review of an anthology of work by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, The Scandal of the Century and Other Writings, where she focuses on the statement, I do not want to be remembered for 100 years of solitude, nor for the Nobel Prize, but for the newspaper. And that's contained in her essay, Unmagical Realism, the Journalism of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So we can find in Catherine Addington's writing at Commonweal, uh, a tremendous range, which we also are able to benefit from in today's episode. You can find all of that there, that is to say the links in the show notes. If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology, please share this episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform, and maybe leave us a review, a rating, or you can also drop a tip. You can also find Folk Phenomenology on social media. We have dedicated accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Today's interview with Katherine Addington is about translation, and the discussion does take up the work of an actual translator and the work of other translators and the linguistic project that translation is. However, it goes a bit deeper than that into the enigmatic translation of holiness and the life of the saint. And Catherine proposes a simple yet absolutely radical understanding of sanctity itself across all the saints from that point of view. It's a vision rooted in love and here we might think of the sense in which love itself is a kind of translation, a translation to love the world, Dilexit Mundum. Today on Folk Phenomenology, we have Catherine Addington. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for the invite. Yeah, I am so excited to talk with you uh, about translation. But before we talk about sort of translation, you could say as such, translation qua translation, um, you have been translating the writings of St. Rafael Aranis Baron. And uh, I wonder if you might say a little bit about that particular translation as an entry into talking more broadly about translation. Sure, I'm happy to talk about that. So as you mentioned, I've been translating the writings of a 20th century Spanish Trappist monk, uh, Señor Rafael Arnaiz, who is actually the first member of the Trappist order to be canonized. Um, And so he is someone who holds interest both for this kind of monastic audience of, you know, I am publishing this translation with Cistercian Publications, which is an imprint of liturgical press. So it's kind of this very Trappist-centric project, but I think also speaks to a really wide audience beyond, um, you know, it's currently only available in Spanish. I'm making it available in English because I think he has something to say to all of us about um, spirituality, the nature of suffering, the nature of a God who would ask someone to have a really specific vocation like his, which involved leaving the monastery a bunch, uh, chronic illness, mental illness. Um, you know, he's just a really interesting modern saint. So I'm very honored to be uh, his voice in English and very excited to be sharing that with everyone. Yeah, no, that's ex- that's so exciting. I mean, if, if um, uh, I've been re- reading some of your tweets uh and especially over the summer you were sharing kind of some of the passages that you were almost uh heartbroken to have to translate and i want to get into the sort of that that phenomena of the kind of the heartbreak of translation but uh it was so encouraging for me because i was in the midst of a translation and editing project that was a book that was written in portuguese um about a a brazilian uh paulo freire which was also quickly translated and translated very well into Spanish, partially because the author was an Argentine. Uh, so he was uh, kind of an, uh, a quick study on uh, with his translator on, on that. And I was putting it into English uh, at the time. And so um, it was it was just I just kind of felt on Twitter like, you know, there was someone else out there <laughs> translating. And it was so comforting and it was so exciting. Um but I wonder, like, you know, again, before we talk about maybe translation as such, there is, I think, something about the translation of Romance languages into English, and in particular, 
Spanish into English. Um, do you have any comments or any notes or any particular stories with that? And yeah, it's a little bit, I'm always a little bit hesitant to be too specific about like translation from particular languages presenting particular challenges because mm -hmm. I think, you know, all of us who have studied languages like are aware of this kind of assumption like that um, particular languages have particular personalities and have and, and it can devolve into nationalism a little bit quickly. So I think for me, one of the joys yeah, yeah. of uh, of this process has been realizing how expressive English can be if we let it. Like mm -hmm. I, when I first started working on San Rafael, I remember speaking with my collaborator, who, uh, Sister Maria Gonzalo, who is a Trappist nun here in uh, Crozet, Virginia. So she has been helping me with this, um, you know, making sure that my, my Spanish to English uh, approximation is correct. Um, and one of the things that she and I talked about very early on in this project is how uh, Spanish in the sense of Spain, <laughs> um, St. Rafael's way of speaking is, you know, he's, mm -hmm. his parents mm -hmm. are from um, Andalusia. So he has this extremely idiomatic, like energetic tendency toward exaggeration. And when mm -hmm. you translate that into American English of this century, it sounds very dramatic. Um, mm -hmm. It sounds how we would code it as a more feminine way of speaking. Um, mm -hmm. And there's always a temptation to say, well, you know, that's not how he would come off where he's from. So should we minimize that? I'm like, no, gotta, gotta keep that personality. That personality is part of the joy of it. You know, if he mm. wants to call everything the Isimo and the Isima, <laughs> all uh -huh. right, well then it's uh -huh. gonna be the mostest and the bestest all the time, you know? And mm -hmm. I think for me, that's less of a question of, there is certainly a, a Spanish cultural aspect into an a, American English aspect of that. But I think it's also about more the individual personality of the person you're translating and less um, mm. less about the language itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually appreciate that caution. Um, you know, I um, I mean, my own personal relationship to, uh, in particular, Spanish language is complicated, um, but it was both humbling and, to be honest, humiliating to go to college someone you know native speaker or whatever blah 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 and uh and absolutely feel like i had no abilities in in a language that i was fluent in for conversational to some extent written and orthographic uh that's where things started to fall apart but you know um and uh and and my teacher my professor uh dr spinnenweber she, um, you know, she, she, she took me to task for four years and, 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 and one of the things I came out of was this overcorrection where I acquired so much esteem and so much respect for, for this, for Spanish, um, with very little historical context, which is weird to be reading Ciclo de Oro text with, with a kind of almost a historical sense. Sure. All this to say though, that like, I actually had to like, I was shocked when I found out that Borges was obsessed with English, right? Like, the, like whenever the I English speakers I, I, are obsessed with him. I mean, it's mutual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like one of the things, like I had to learn in a way to to fall in love with English, um, and to know that English has a sufficiency and a capacity uh, and an expressivity of its own, and that there is some, at least 
striving for some universal form of communication mm-hmm. in, in the act of translation, which is, um, again, I, I think you nailed me on the, it's not just nationalistic. It's also <laughs> culturally like nativistic, right? And that's what I had to break out of. And then I overcorrected and now I'm coming back to the place where, where you clearly are centered in, which is which is awesome. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, I, I had to come to that realization as well. Like I, I had a very different experience in terms of my relationship with the language. Um, and I have a bit of a complex about it now because you're speaking to me after a year of being alone in my apartment, speaking Spanish only to a dead monk. So like I have a very <laughs> idiomatic, <laughs> idiosyncratic, strange way of talking now in the, uh, the language that I'm getting a doctorate in and I'm almost mm-hmm. forgetting, right? So I, yeah. you know, I'm not a native speaker of Spanish. I learned it mostly in classrooms and then by living in Spanish speaking countries. Um, and then I came to grad school and you know, promptly began to speak Spanish, mostly with non-native speaking undergraduates. So mm-hmm. I have teacher Spanish, I have translator Spanglish, and mm-hmm. there does come a point where um, the distance that introduces um, yeah. can definitely be a problem, but it can also be a gift in the sense of, well, I'm no longer fixated on, um, you know, Saint Rafael necessarily as a Spanish speaking person. And I'm a little bit more invested in him as, okay, this is, you know, a spiritual treasure. He clearly has um, a very individual um, way of speaking. You know, his Spanish is not everyone's Spanish, it's his. And so mm-hmm. I, think, I think the distance can be helpful um, in that particular kind of work because it's, uh, you know, you always have to be on guard for stereotypes and assumptions but Mm -hmm. it's a little bit less of a risk when you are so clearly immersed in just one person than when you're kind of engaging with the canon as a whole which is what you know as a as a literature uh, phd student for the past couple of years i've definitely been engaging with a canon presented as a whole and it becomes very easy when you're memorizing authors for your comprehensive exams and whatnot to kind of conflate them all and so it's yeah. it's been a real gift to be able to spend time with just one person and just his voice for a year. You yeah, know? no, that's great. I mean, I'm. <laughs> I was thinking. I was like, I'm really no better off because I'm, I'm in Canada. <laughs> I'm a Mexican American living in Canada. Uh, it's it's not any better up here for one Spanish. Um, I have a funny story to share, and maybe this will prompt a little bit more uh, chatting on this. Um, so one of the things that. Um, I also learned is that um, this is obvious if I would have paid attention, but you know it's 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 not common, even if a person is fluent in another language, to translate their own work into that language. Um, it, it's 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 generally it, I always compare it to like you know um, doctors shouldn't really treat their own kids, mm, and emerge, yeah. you know, um, and and there's something really I think. Um, noteworthy about that distance like you were talking about like i think there's something really valuable there and when i translate portuguese i feel that distance because i can't even speak it conversationally right right i learned i learned to read my emails because my last name is Rocha, and so i would get a lot of emails in portuguese from brazilians when i was sponsoring our paulo freire conference because they see someone Rocha, they don't even think twice they assume i'm mm-hmm. And so I, I, I literally taught myself piece by piece, borrowing tons on my Spanish, um, but also false cognates everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. All that to say that um, my, my first book uh, from 2014 was translated by one of my students, Fernando Murillo, who's a Chilean. And, and we, we fought 
for like, you know, eight, nine months. Yeah. So much so we had to get mediators. We had to get this kind of mediators from from Spain, from Mexico, from from all over, you know, uh, uh, the Hispanic speaking world um, to mediate. And there was a particular part where I uh, now this is English and Spanish. Right. So we're kind mm-hmm. of inverting the, the process. But right. there was a section that called being in love. That's the title of the section, being in love. And I really meant being in that sense of dwelling, right? Yeah. In that sense of like, 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 taking, making one's home in. And to me, in my idiomatic understanding of the language, the word mora, morar, mm-hmm. was this perfect, beautiful word, you know, mora en el amor. And to Fernando, it sounded like a berry. <laughs> Moras. Okay, so that's buried. a problem. <laughs> yeah, huge problem. So he was offended at mine, and it, and you know what? This is all. This is all. We, we 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 love each other dearly and stuff. But he was like, "Oh, that's this weird Mexican thing," and I'm like, "Well, that's this weird Chilean thing," you know. And he's like, "It's in Castellano." We would say, "I'm like, oh, Castellano, Espanol." That was another thing, right? You know. Right. Anyhow, all that to say that, like, you know, I've seen this work in both directions. Um, I wonder though, uh, if you were put into the test, uh, I'm going to have you mediate our argument. It's already, I won't tell you what came out, who won. How would you translate being in love? I, well, see, I'm very much in the position of, I would never translate into Spanish because I simply cannot, <laughs> I, my, I cannot do it. Um, <laughs> Let's do a possible world game. Come on. In a possible world game. No. And like, this is actually a question that I've, I've, I've come up against a lot actually, which is that when I. You know, when I say that I'm getting my degrees in Spanish and that I'm a translator, the assumption is that I'm translating from English to Spanish always. Like, I cannot tell you the number of people who have asked me to translate things to Spanish, you know, for school or work or church mm-hmm. or what have you. Because the assumption is that English speakers speak and Spanish speakers listen. Like, in the United yeah. States, that's what it is. And uh-huh. so, and so uh-huh. by deciding to make a career out of, I'm going to take spanish language spiritual texts and turn them into english language ones i am saying to the english speakers in the united states like you have something to learn from this tradition so i i fully admit i am just also being a graduate student who's very good at getting out of questions i don't want to answer but like that is also definitely true (laughs) um and in this case like the being in love part i think the other problem is that in english we do this um we love the vagueness of our gerunds. Like we love those ing words mm-hmm. because they can be nouns and they can be verbs and we don't have mm-hmm. to specify. And in yeah. Spanish, you don't quite have that. Um, mm-hmm. You have to choose between the infinitive and the gerund and they don't casually coexist like they do in English. And so I, extru- I resent that a lot. I think sometimes, yeah. I think the assumption is that because Romance languages are a lot more specific with their verbs in terms of conjugation, that you have more options and more flexibility. But I actually find the opposite, which is that English is vagueness when it comes to, you know, all those verbs kind of blend together. There's Mm -hmm. a real like artistic potential there that's very helpful. And in Spanish, like the need to limit myself (laughs) to just one interpretation is really hard. And I'm not very good at capturing that kind of nuance without all those linguistic resources, so. But please yeah, no. do tell so me what happened. You with gave it. me the, 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 the two ways of getting out of the question. No, that's brilliant. That's really good. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, I was shocked when I read. Um, now, I, I, if I, probably if I could learn one language, like wake up and know it, I think it would be Russian. 
interesting. Uh, so I could read, you know, Chekhov and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Uh, also because Dr. Spinnenweber was Russian and Spanish were her there two languages. So I think I'm still, you know, trying to uh, emulate uh, my teacher. I mean, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and, I, and I'm very open. I mean, I'm proud to, to, <laughs> to try uh, and mm -hmm. emulate her. Um, but um, I, whenever I read that Richard Peviar and Larissa Volokowski, the kind of who's taken translation by storm in terms of the, you know, Russian to English translation. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Paris Review, the Art of Translation series they have, um, when I read that, that he like l just literally doesn't know Russian. What? No, he just doesn't. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> what? Like, like, like he knows like maybe like, you know, like he probably, he probably knows less Russian than I know Portuguese. And I know very, you know. That blows my mind. And, and so, uh, his his partner Larissa Volokowski, she takes on the that side, and they work together, and that's how they work. That's a division of labor, so to speak, between okay. them. Um, so it's not like a Gilgamesh situation with the whole like Mitchell translation that you know that kind of a you know where like someone is literally almost like just feeling their way through. Um, gotcha. Uh, it's it's more rigorous than that, uh, but it's teamwork, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you were talking about being alone and isolated, uh, but also about running things by people. And I think like the editorial aspect of translation is super important to me. I was just talking about hire, bringing in mediators. I mean, so could we talk a bit about translation? We think of the translator, but it's never really actually, a tr you know. Nope. <laughs> yeah. It's a very collective enterprise. I um, There's a poem I love about this by Catherine Hedin, and it's called Manifesto, I think with a question mark at the end. And ah. she, and it's beautiful because the poem itself is very short and most of it is written in the footnotes, which is extremely relatable to me as an academic. Um, but one of the things she, she gets into in there is how this individual artist, it's this very romantic idea, that you are legitimate if you are inspired and so therefore you must be by yourself at all times doing it on your own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with translation, you're already, it's kind of a just complete destruction of the ego because you're literally supposed to not be noticed, um, which I kind of yeah. have philosophical problems with. But, you know, theoretically, that's what people assume translation is about, is about you disappearing and the author, you know, dominating. Um, it's, sure. it's kind of assumed that, um, you know, if you make creative choices that are noticeable, that you are causing problems. <laughs> and so you already don't really have that, that illusion that you are some kind of individual artists creating a new thing, um, at least according to, you know, our predominant cultural assumptions about what translation is. And if you add the additional layer of community, of yeah. the fact that I, you know, fundamentally what I produce is mostly English, but quite a bit of Spanglish, quite a bit of ridiculousness that really sounds okay only in my brain because I've been immersed in, you know, this one text forever. And it sounds sure. completely robotic to someone else at times. And so part of the process is not only checking with my Spanish, you know, native collaborator um, to make sure that I have correctly reflected the meaning of the original, but also I got to talk to a bunch of English speakers who don't know Spanish and say, does this make sense to you if you've never seen the original? And by the time I've actually put all of that in there, uh, it's not meaningfully just my work. <laughs> you know, I have mm -hmm. San Rafael, obviously, as my primary collaborator, but then I have all these other people who made contributions, um, including, you know, 
okay, I need to crowdsource options for this on Twitter because I just can't come up with another synonym. Like, there are any number of people who contribute. And so then at the end, you know, you are absolutely just that idea of I am this individual creative on my own accomplishing this great work, like, is so completely destroyed by the end of that. And I think that's a good thing. Um, Mm. You know, I, the kind of framework I I use to understand translation is, is not surprisingly taken from religious life, you know, because that is in fact what I've been translating this whole time as a monk. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of characterize it perhaps a little bit, uh, dramatically, which is, you know, my tendency anyway, uh, as a vow of obedience you're making to your author. You are, no, I am not your editor. Um, Mm -hmm. If I don't like your ideas, tough luck. Like, I'll I'll offer it up to God, but I got to do it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And that Mm. vow is lived in community. I mean, it's it's really hard to keep to that on your own. If you don't have other people keeping you accountable and making sure, hey, I noticed that he said this and you kind of made it sound better. Can you not? Like, if I don't have Mm -hmm. other people doing that, I will just write instead of translating. So yeah. for me, that's been uh, both, you know, professionally challenging and good and helped me develop. But it's also been like kind of an occasion for spiritual growth, I think, because it really does involve cultivating a lot of humility that is absolutely not natural to me. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I'm very grateful for the kind of spiritual aspects of translation in that sense. Wow, you've laid a real feast there in that response. I, I suppose... Um, I mean, I, I want to hear more about your philosophical objections to the idea of the translator as a, uh, you know, uh, as an invisible uh, person here. I, that, yeah. that sounds a little bit controversial to me. I don't even know. I don't know if I agree. I'd, lo- I'd love to hear more. Yeah, well, so this is not happening in a vacuum, right? This is in a world where most authors are male and most translators are female. So that's not, you know, unusual and it's not casual. Um even, you know, uh, if you look at just hundreds of years of historical texts and you, you look and see who tends to be the translators, I mean, it's not a new phenomenon. Um, it's been a long time that that's been the balance. So there's, huh. a, great, um, there's a great Quebecois uh, feminist translator and writer, Suzanne de Lopinier-Harwood, who talks about this. And she basically says that, um, you know, the idea of infidelity in translation is is a gendered metaphor for a reason. Um, It's because the idea of the female translator being unfaithful to the male author, um, you know, means that she has introduced a a visible difference, which is how she characterizes, like, female bodies are visibly different. You know, that kind of, like, assumption that you are other and that the the male original is the original default, right? So that's part of it. Part of it is just like, I am very aware of this like feminist tradition of making sure Sure. that we we notice that. Part of it's also just common sense, which is that like the original is in Spanish. The translation is in English. It is inherently going to be a new text. Like if you want to read the original, you should read the original. (laughs) Uh, You know, so it's like, there's kind of the, uh, just the obvious aspect of it, which is that the reader of a translated text is making an enormous act of trust in you to be the interpreter. You know, when, I mean, we've basically not changed our understanding of what translation is since St. Jerome put it like sense for sense, not word for word. And that is Mm -hmm. correct, but it's also assuming a huge thing, which is that you know what the sense is and we all agree on it. And you never do. I mean, he was speaking a biblical translation. I can't think of a book that's argued Mm -hmm. about more, you know? So it it does. Plus rendering that in English is difficult as well. I mean, the classic sentido and significado. Absolutely. Um, So 
I sometimes say sense and significance, but I mean these are that's a that's a that's a clumsy. Uh, that's more word for word than sense for sense, <laughs> right? right? And, there, uh, and it's always like that. I mean, even talking about you know translation theory, almost all of it is translated itself. You know, a lot of the people that I studied um, that I'm drawing from. You know, Jerome's writing in Latin. I can't read Latin. You know, um, mm-hmm. I read a lot mm-hmm. about, you know, Suzanne de Lubinier Harwood writes in both French and English, but mostly in French. So I've read her in translation as well. Um, mm-hmm. the, the other person who I think about a lot with translation is kind of a classic, like, you know, textbook anthology appearance is Friedrich Schleiermacher, who wrote in German. And yeah. his whole deal is basically, you know, between the options you have as a translator, you can either make the reader more likely to understand the author or you can make right. the author more likely to make sense to the reader. And right. so, you know, basically like, am I gonna take this author and make them sound like someone who's writing in English in 2021? Mm-hmm. Or am I gonna take my reader and prepare them to read someone who's writing in Spanish yeah. in 1936? So, and it's a severe choice, because you can't have both. Exactly. And, yeah. and the reality is, you know, every translation is going to be dated. I mean, the English that sure. I use is going to sound, you know, like 2021, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. Or 2020, actually. But, you know, it's going to sound like the way we talk now. So that's kind of unavoidable. Sure. But so with that in mind, you know, it's a lot more feasible to say, well, St. Rafael is going to stay between 1911 and 1938 forever. He, sure. He's not going to change. So if I take my reader and I say, well, this is what, you know, English sounded like more or less in those years and I do my best to capture that, then yeah. I'm much more likely to like not fall prey to that whole immediate obsolescence, hopefully. God, mm. God willing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, uh, I had a, a conversation with a, a scholar of uh, oh, many things. One of those people is a scholar of basically everything. <laughs> um, but we were talking about the Hebrew Bible a bit. I think the Adler translation had just come out, and I... I was like, I had pre-ordered <laughs> the, uh, I was so stoked about it. And, um, when we were talking, uh, he reads Hebrew. And so I felt a little bit, you know, like the, the lowbrow, uh, excitement of, of, of this translation sure, you know, yeah. to make, to make the Hebrew Bible more accessible to me. And he said something that he may have been just seeking to comfort me and make me feel uh, less of like less of an idiot around him, but nonetheless, it struck me as really uh, like it really turned me around. Uh, he said, "I never feel like I've read anything until I've read it in translation." Hmm. Now that inverts the the, the assumption. Yeah, right? it does. Right, um, and so if I can go just one step further in this example, because so I I took this I took him on his word, and you know I studied. In high school, we read whatever, a bridge, Cervantes, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I studied in, uh, in undergrad, we read Cervantes in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I took a certain amount of pride, actually. Uh, oh, sure. And, and not, you know, and, and, and not helping myself to, uh, uh, to, to translations. And... Um, and so I had a reading group, and we read the the, the Lanthrop, uh, uh, the newer translation uh, of the Quixote. And I told everyone, I'm going to test my my friend's advice and see if you know reading the Quixote in in in, in English it will make me feel like it's the first time I've ever read, you know, the Quixote and Cervantes. And uh, 
And I have to say, I, I did feel that way. I, 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 I encountered a, a, a new sensibility, a new appreciation. Um, uh, things worked. Um, I was also a more skeptical reader, sure. right? And that was good. Like, 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 like for me, I think what my what my friend said was it could be in some sense true that we that we don't we haven't read a text until we've read it in translation. What do you think of that? I, I love that because to me it it kind of gets at what I like so much about translation, which is that you get the chance to make someone excited about a text they wouldn't otherwise have access to. Um, yeah. in, in your case, like both you know both of those examples are people who are fluent in the original, and so it's like not quite the same thing. But yeah, but yeah, you yeah. are basically you know. It, it invites skepticism, like you said, which I actually think is, you know, very exciting way to read something to say, well, yeah. is this really the meaning, you know? And even if you're not fluent in the original, you know, if you come across something in the book that sticks out at you and you're like, I don't know about that. And then you go and check it, you know, that is, you know, even if you don't like my work as a translator, you cannot deny I have facilitated an encounter with the text, right? So it, right, it kind of, right. it invites a lot more active reader, which I really like. I think that, um, you know, the process of close reading that we talk about so much in, sure. you know, literature classes and whatnot, like translation is such a perfect example of that. And reading in translation is very much that as well, where every single word you're asking yourself, what is the relationship to the original text? Mm -hmm. um, what is the interpretation they're making? What are the consequences of that interpretation? And you're doing all of that without having to explicitly ask those questions. It's just kind of built into the reading process, which I think is yeah. is delightful. And I also think for me, you know, I enjoy reading and translation a lot more now than I did before I became a translator. Um, uh -huh. I think before I just kind of saw it as like a capitulation to not knowing languages. <laughs> right, 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 right. And now, yeah. you know, I, I enjoy it a lot more because I know how much work went into it and I can appreciate yeah. the creativity that's happening um, yeah. like right now I'm reading oh I'm going to forget the title of the book naturally now that we're talking about it but the translator <laughs> is Mara, Mara Faye Lethem translated um, you know, The Adventures and Misadventures of Joan Orpi I believe it's from Catalan uh, it's a contemporary novel but it's written in the style of Cervantes actually it's written in the style mm -hmm. of you know these kind of golden age picaresque uh, mm -hmm. episodic tales and yeah, so yeah, yeah. And it's extremely satirical and extremely funny. And, you know, in Catalan, it is extremely funny and good. But in English, it's almost funnier because you don't mm -hmm. have the built-in cultural reference of the Quixote. You have to make it funny without that, which is very hard. <laughs> so, so, you know, no, this is so uh, for me, one thing I, I, I said is that this is by far funnier because it's flat it just it's yeah. it turns into the three stooges you know it's slapstick <laughs> yeah. right you know uh whereas in, e in spanish it, it carries so much complexity with it mm -hmm. and even when you're reading the the spanish at the distance of you know five centuries and you're you know it's like the, the english just makes it pop so much more like i was yeah. belly laughing when i was rereading these stories you know well, and i don't remember being that funny <laughs> well, yeah. especially because if you're reading it in spanish it's like you can't ever read cervantes in a world where he's not cervantes you know like it's right. not you can never go back to what it was like to read that you know when it first yeah. came out now it's like this great tome you know, and so you yeah. can't. And whereas, if you're reading it in translation, I do think it kind of takes that pressure off a little bit. Yeah. And you can just be reading. Here's a new translation. Here's a new book, actually. You know, that just mm -hmm. came out and presents the story in a new way. And you know, that's why I enjoy so much more now reading these translations because I have 
a little bit less of the pressure on myself to be like, I am engaging with great literature. You can just be reading a book, you know? And I think (laughs) great literature wants to be read that way. Yeah. I I don't know if this is taking um, us too far, but like, um, like I enjoy going to see Shakespeare and I, I, I enjoy when people, you know, we have a Shakespeare festival here every summer Love it. and they'll do these, um, you know, they did like an adaptation of, oh, I don't remember which one it was exactly. I think it was like a, um, a wives tale or something, um, out of like Ontario, uh, uh, Canada, London, Ontario, Canada. Nice. Uh, nice. And it was, you know, it was super folky and I'm not even Canadian, so I didn't get half of the humor or whatever, but it was <laughs> sure. completely, you know, broken down and stuff. Um, and, and and to me, there there's something about the experience of seeing Shakespeare performed and seeing Shakespeare performed with some contemporary infidelity almost mm-hmm. that compares calm almost to this experience of translation that kind of breaks down and simplifies in some cases your encounter with, for instance, humor or comedy yeah. and, and you know some of these things. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely different to adapt something than to translate it, but I think it has that in common, which is kind of that you can approach the creative expression as an opportunity or as a burden. And I always try to see it as an opportunity. You know, like I, when I am translating Saint Raphael in particular, you know, he's very funny even when he's talking about extremely heavy mystical topics. And for me, it's a huge opportunity to be able to say to an English language reader, you know, a saint doesn't have to sound intense and sad all the time a saint doesn't have to use the thy whatever they can just talk like you because you can also be a saint you know and that's fun to me whereas if i approach it as a burden of like oh how do i you know hold these things in tension it's like well why are you assuming there's tension maybe it could be exciting you know so i think to me it's like all of these uh questions of you know, adaptation, am I changing it too much? Am I taking it too far? I mean, that's kind of what I have editors for is because to me, it's like, I always want to take that opportunity if sure. I, if it's presented. And then if someone thinks I'm going too far, they can tell me and we'll figure it out. But I always yeah, want to, yeah, yeah. I always want to err on the side of make this text come alive. Cause sure. if it's not doing that, then there's no reason to, to translate it in the first place. You know, if, if you don't want people yeah. to get excited about this and if you're always operating from this place of caution, it's like, well, right. then just leave it in Spanish and make people learn Spanish, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's so, uh, yeah, I totally, I, I agree with that. I, I think um, there's there's um, there's something else you said uh, that I wanted to retrieve from back a few answers ago. Sure. Uh, which is the question of Spanglish, which, you know, because um, sometimes translation is, in some sense, either not translation or more like a hybridization of language versus the kind of conversion, you know, of interpretation. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've argued with um, Freire, for some reason they didn't translate conscientización, um, and they left it alone. And there was this whole like high-headed you know, oh, this can't be translated. It, it's it's too. And I was like, actually, conscientization, as neologistic as it as it is, it kind of, it rings right. It sounds right. I think people can understand it. Yeah. Um, there are other words that I would have ten times more agreed with, kind of you know, leaving in their original idiomatic 
uh, expression. But, you know, the question of Spanglish to me is interesting because um, <laughs> I lost my Spanglish when I acquired Spanish. Hmm. Um, and when I listen to, you know, my tios and tias and primas and primos talk, you know, Rio Grande Valley, you know, Valle Spanish, I mean... I mean, it, it's it's a marvel to me now. Mm -hmm. In some sense, it's it's made it interesting instead of natural, which I guess I appreciate. Yeah. But, but I tell you what, I can't do it. Well, it uh, is I, a language unto itself. I mean, it's a and it's yeah. a very like that kind of hybrid language when it comes about in a natural setting like that. It does have its own conventions and quirks, and you do have to learn it. Um, I, you know, obviously come from a very different situation where I did sure. have this artificial separation in my life between English and Spanish most of the time. Yeah. You know, I didn't really have that um, blending for most, of, other than the time when I lived in Buenos Aires and uh, among, you know, a bunch of American people. I mostly sure. didn't have that blend. I mostly kept it very separate. And so for me, you know, the kind of um, third language is what we call it <laughs> when yeah. I'm teaching yeah. translation. Third language is not the same thing as the natural output of like a bilingual family or community. Sure. Third language is when you speak two or more languages and in your brain you have mm -hmm. a very, you have this kind of inability to code switch perfectly. And those, yeah. those moments when you fail to make the switch appropriately and you produce something that only makes sense if you understand both languages, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's third language. That's when you're like, okay, if an English speaker is reading this translation and they don't speak Spanish, they're not going to know what this phrase means. And mm -hmm. so for me, like my Spanglish is less actually Spanglish. So maybe I should just use third language instead. <laughs> and mine is more like the accidental artificial overlap of two linguistic categories in my brain that don't okay. always, you know, come out appropriately. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm trying to come up with examples. I'm always completely, yeah. it's always completely impossible when I actually have to come up with them off the top of my head. Um, but I feel like, you know, if, for example, if you translate an idiom literally, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, see, now I can't remember what it is in Spanish, but the, um, the, you know, in English, when we say, and they lived happily ever after at the end of a fairy sure. tale. Sure. Well, in Spanish, it's like, and then they, um, they were at, they were happy in the eight partridges or something. Comieron perdices. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and you can't just say they were happy in the eight partridges. That doesn't make any sense. You know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah. example of third language where it's like sure. if I if I just do that literally. Oh, that's so cool. And I'm just thinking of it. Then it's like, what does that mean? Um, you know, that's funny because yeah. that actually also happens. I have a, a my tío meme. Um, uh, so my 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 sister's uh, uh, husband, so my brother-in-law, my cuñado, uh, John, is from Georgia, and my tío Meme would like, you know, full Spanglish going on. But then he would want to like speak some English to John because John doesn't speak Spanish sure. or Spanglish, or you know. And, and John was a great sport about all of it. But the funniest thing would happen because of his desire to, in some sense, include uh, an, an Anglophone in the kind of the give and take there. So you try to translate a joke or a saying. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, for the listeners, they figured out by now. But just for everyone, I'm Mexican. I can I can use this accent. You'd be like, uh, so John, uh, trim, trim, that falls asleep, the current takes it. <laughs> and John would be like, camarón que se duerme se lo lleva la corriente, right? 
quite work in English, I don't think. <laughs> no, it doesn't work at all. And of course, he would say this and everyone would be like, no, deal, that doesn't make any sense. It's not funny, you know. And he would be like, no, it, may, it makes perfect sense. What do you mean it doesn't make sense? Tramp. Come on, don't, you know, and he would, and it was interesting because like, I, I, and now I'm thinking like I could narrate this into this hilarious uh, <laughs> essay on translation working from his, his sense that it's so obvious that I'm translating, like all the words make sense and everyone's protesting saying, this makes no sense whatsoever. This is, you know, you're drunk, stop it, you know, <laughs> that kind of a thing. Um, so it's funny because that third language introduces actually more realism into the complexities of Spanglish whenever it's it's not just the inside cultural Spanglish, but especially whenever that Spanglish comes into context. It comes into contact with those who may not, you know, share it. For wow. sure. And I, I feel like yeah. especially for me, one of the challenges as a non-native speaker of Spanish who's doing this translation is figuring out, okay, when is you know, in my example, Saint Rafael, when is he saying something that is idiomatic? Like, this is something that if you're in Spain and you're speaking Spanish, that's a common phrase, you know what it means. And when is he just writing a weird phrase? That's strange, yeah. you know? Yeah. And for me, it's not always obvious. You know, sometimes I'll be like, I'll ask, you know, my collaborator, Sister Maria, I'll be like, is this a phrase? And he said, uh, no, he just, he's just saying something weird. And so then you have to come up with, okay, well then I don't want it to sound natural in English either. If it would sound weird to a Spanish speaker, it needs to sound weird to an English speaker. So then I find myself in the position of trying to come up with something that would sound appropriately wrong. And so of course, you know, the ego always comes in and you're like, but people are gonna think I made a mistake. And it's like, mm. but God and I know I did it, so it's okay. <laughs> um, but you do kind of have to, you always have, that's where like register comes in in, in terms of um, mm. the relative formality and familiarity to a native speaker um, mm -hmm. needs to be the same in both the source tests and the translation. Um, regardless of whether or not you happen to like that it sounds wrong, if it needs to sound wrong, it needs to sound wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the question of fidelity again. Yeah. It's funny because I mean fidelity, like high fidelity, high five, like, like even in music and audio and stuff, it's it's such a difficult, it's a metaphysical concept. Uh, uh, I'm not saying it's not also gendered in other ways. Um, but it has that sense of that that desire for a certain kind of correspondence mm -hmm. in the ideal, but in the realm of, of just real and material things that, yeah. that you know, yeah. It's, and it's, I often too, I think, uh, I always try to push back against as well, like as much as I embrace the, the feminist critique of the idea of fidelity in translation, mm -hmm. I do think it's important, especially, you know, as a Catholic translator, I'm like, let's, let's not totally hate on the concept of faith, right? Like that's actually very mm -hmm. important, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's actually okay to say I reverence the original and that's the reason that I'm mm. committing myself to this work. Like I think sometimes yeah. you, we can overcorrect, you know, uh, and yeah. To me, especially as a translator of a saint, I am very obviously making a, a, you know, a commitment of faith to this work and saying, I do think this is spiritually fruitful for you to read. So it's a little more obvious for me, but I think in, in perfectly secular, totally you know, creative uh, fiction projects as well, there is absolutely that, that sense of and, you know, commitment to the original, even if you don't want to use the word faith, right? But there is a certain mm -hmm. faith that you is involved in saying, I believe that this is useful and that sure. it is it is worth capturing. So I do think that as much as I, you know, 
disdain the metaphor. <laughs> it can, mm-hmm. I don't want to totally abandon that either. Well, and there's also, I think, degrees here. Like, you know, um, there's always over and under determination of it. Like, um, and this is the realm of just simple interpretation, um, which I don't know about you, but like, I resist the urge to say like translation is interpretation the end right like i mean oh it's any number of things yeah <laughs> well yeah exactly like, to me like yes and right, um, right. and it's a particular kind of interpretation that's in some ways different than mm-hmm. you know uh but like when i'm you know just teaching in class and we're reading a book and we're trying to figure out you know what in the world is plato getting on about <laughs> in translation mm-hmm. you know um i like to teach exegesis first and 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 that's submission you could say to mm-hmm. to the word is and, and to the author's personhood is having something to say to you mm-hmm. and to see the other of the author as someone who has their voice and who you're not permitted to simply you know manipulate or whatever but then inevitably the eisegetical is is a is a concession i have to make pretty much like a minute into that emphasis on exegesis mm-hmm. and admit that of course everything is eisegetical in the set in the phenomenological sense that like it's our consciousness that's making that room for the other and so mm-hmm. there is this room you know but the the x and the ice the the in and the out those that tension i think is is uh it's impossible to reconcile i suppose yeah i i do think i do think that the value of emphasizing that translation is interpretation for me is um almost for the reader's benefit Mm-hmm. Uh, some, something I, someone whose whose work is really influential for me in this, in thinking about this, is Kate Lowe, who wrote about um, Saint Jerome, actually his translation of the Bible, and how he, you know, like we were talking about earlier, he's all about semantic translation, sense for sense, and not literal, word for word. Um, but his sense of things is extremely personal, biased, and mm-hmm. it had huge consequences. She writes about the. Um, black but beautiful formulation in the Song of Songs and how that was his interpretation of what was in fact just said black and beautiful but he thought those were antonyms so they couldn't possibly be an and there and that had huge ramifications you know and so this whole emphasis on okay when you're translating you're also interpreting for me Mm -hmm. it it's a reminder of my responsibility because and I think for religious texts this takes on a particular power because you know if you get a novel wrong that you know is very obviously like one person's creative uh intervention and then your creative intervention and they're in slight disagreement that's a little Mm -hmm. bit easier to understand and to reckon with when you're talking about a text that has you know some kind of cultural influence power um you know a particularly influential novel a law a the bible you know a saint's Mm -hmm. text then your interventions in those senses can take on this power dynamic and they can, yeah. you know, if you're, your interpretation, whether you like it or not, or whether you think it you're supposed to or not, it is sort of reified by the cultural power of the original text. And so in mm. Jerome's case, you know, he's translating the Bible. So, and, you know, later is obviously recognized as a saint. So we all just kind of assume that's good to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his interpretations take on the weight of biblical authority. And in my mm. case, it's like, all right, well, I'm translating a saint who is basically not known to any English speakers um, mm-hmm. and isn't particularly well known in Spain either. So, um, mm. He's been canonized, right? 
now. Yeah. So that means that people are going to assume everything in there is flawless, whether or not that's a good understanding of what yeah. canonization means. Mm-hmm. If if there are going to be errors in there, they need to be his. If I add more, then I'm causing problems. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's where, like, for me, as much as I celebrate, you know, the creativity of translation, I'm also really, really cautious to not... Mm-hmm. Um, to not turn my voice into something that has his authority, you know? Yeah. His authority needs to stay with his voice. Um, yeah. Because if, you know, Kayla was a really, you know, good reminder of the fact that um, those seemingly small decisions can have very big consequences um, if you're not aware of that sort of thing. Sure. I mean, authority. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> the word itself is... Mm-hmm. Uh, is fairly literal and that's and and if we take it that way Mm -hmm. um gosh this is so great this is so rich um i i wish in some sense i I wish you could just keep diving down and down Uh, the kind of on the tail end here uh i know this is very dramatic and i know it's very sentimental um but every time I'm pressed to talk about reading, writing, editing, translation, you know, these kind of literary um, tasks, um, I always end up at a kind of, uh, well, as I ended, as I mentioned about that book, that, that section, Being in Love, is the last section of the book. Um, and it's a primer on philosophy and education. And so. I always end up with like, look, it's, it's, um, it's a kind of love, mm-hmm. like, like, and, and there's a lover and there's a beloved and there's divine love, and, but there's also, you know, all of the idiosyncrasies and daily annoyances of, right. of just regular, ordinary love, uh, the burdens, um, and the occasional ecstasies, you know, and, and I wonder, um, you seem to be reacting positively to that account. Some people, of course, just reject it out of hand. Like, how could you say that this is too much? You know, for you, it, it seems almost, uh, uh, like it's, uh, as it is for me, sort of obvious, but I think it's important to, to say out loud and to add, uh, more words to. So I wonder if you might uh, yeah. do that or think with that idea. Yeah, I mean, first of all, drama and sentiment are good. I'll start with that. <laughs> um, I will add that, you know, loving what you do is theoretically what our culture believes. And yet there is some kind of assumption, I think cynically, that um, if, if you do, in fact, love what you do, which I know is a privilege, but if you introduce love into what you do, which I don't think mm-hmm. is a privilege, um, that you are somehow, you know, hoodwinked and deceived and you're being ridiculous, which, you know, uh, I, I've always come to translation, um, as this kind of joyful puzzle that I got to do in my free time while I was, uh, you know, working on my very serious monograph that was supposed to be my dissertation. And then the plague (laughs) hit and spared me that. And now translation became my my full-time job. It became my my dissertation and and now the book. So I definitely saw, you know, my academic work as something I wasn't supposed to enjoy. I was supposed to, you know, take it very seriously, which I saw as opposite of loving it and enjoying it. and then I had this kind of side project of translation that I was like, well, that's fun, so it can't be work. <laughs> um, and now that I am, you know, fully immersed in this translation, 
I'm seeing the error of that, but I'm also realizing that, you know, from the very beginning of at least the monastic translation tradition, um, it was always understood in this context of a relationship with love, with God. Um, yeah. Jean Le Carc has a wonderful book on um, the monastic tradition. Uh, I don't remember the title now, naturally, but anyway, it's a, he talks about how in the Benedictine monastic tradition, you know, this activity that begins with grammar, with the study of language, is supposed to end with contemplation of God. The only reason, especially in monastic context, where the majority of the ways that you pray involve reading and meditating upon reading, from sacred reading to the liturgy of the word to the liturgy of the hours, you know, they're all ways of slowly enjoying word yeah. as a way of slowly enjoying the word of God. So learning from Sweet that as honey in my mouth <laughs> exactly and yeah. learning from that for me as someone who kind of thought well you know if i'm taking too much joy in my work then i must be doing it wrong yeah. <laughs> um, you know has really helped me embrace the more spiritual and more joyful aspects of it like i've been translating in plague time the chronicle of a person who was you know dying a slow death of a now preventable disease in the middle of a civil war. It's not exactly uplifting, and yet it was delightful. Like, I truly loved getting to witness someone fall in love with God, embrace their calling, and ultimately, you know, die happy. And for me, being a witness to that, of course it was a joy, you know? And I think for me, um, the hope is that in presenting a saint whose life by any reasonable earthly standard was incredibly sad and depressing, um, and I use depressing on purpose because he definitely was depressed. Yeah. Uh, that is not the same thing as saying there was no joy there, there was no love there. I mean, yeah. it's all love. So for me, yeah. presenting that to the world and saying you can be a saint and you can love your life and it doesn't have to be perfect for you to love it. Like that is just such a burden off my shoulders to say, oh great, I don't have to be sunny and optimistic all the time in order to be joyful. That's different. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I was I was going to end on, on love because that's the note one should end on. <laughs> but you've introduced a, a, a new uh, category here, and I wonder if I could make that a false end. Because, you know, to be a saint, if we secularize that, mm -hmm. it just means to be holy. Right. You know, to, and, and, and this is something that the Romance languages, I think, yes. universally understand that the, there's, a, there's a bit of wit and irony even involved in what it means what the difference is between being holy and holiness mm -hmm. and being a, a saint. And um, Jean-Luc Marion has this wonderful essay uh, called The Invisibility of the Saint. Oh. And it all works from the premise that the saint is the, is, is the person who, who can never say they are holy. Hmm. Now, the, the funny thing is the English translation that separates saint and holy yeah. makes this more clear, right? In French, it's buried. I mean, right. So here I'm perhaps taking the advantage of, of its translated sensibility, but mm -hmm. the saint, uh, perhaps capital S, is the person who cannot declare their holiness. And, and the mark of the saint, the true mark of the saint, is precisely this inability to proclaim themselves uh, uh, mm -hmm. to be holy. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder if you, if this extended idea of of the saint as not only the holy person but the holy person who understands this secret lesson 
of, of non-disclosure, this almost apophatic uh, position. Um, I wonder if that if that applies at all to what you said about your literal saint and in, in, in Raphael, but yeah. also the idea of sanctity. That's this kind of universal possibility yeah. for everyone. I mean, I I've been very obsessed with the idea of studying saints and the distinction between that and holy people, uh, like my whole academic career, but also just, I, I love that distinction because to me, it really gets across what a saint, like the function they have in our society versus what they actually are, right? Like we, um, we understand that, you know, in the Catholic tradition, when we say someone is a saint, there is this definition of they are in heaven. Okay, well, that's not all it means. It also means mm. that the church has decided to lift them up as a public example of virtue. Mm-hmm. And there is a politics to that and there's a weight to that. And mm-hmm. that is not the same thing. <laughs> there are plenty yeah. of saints who are not capital S saints. And we all know why. And we all know that's important. And that's also why when the church makes what I think we can plainly call obvious mistakes of mm-hmm. canonizing someone who, who may be a saint in the literal sense of in heaven, but is not a helpful example of public virtue. Mm-hmm. That's why it causes confusion is because right. we have the same word for all these concepts, which are really not the same. Yeah. St. Raphael is a good example of this in that he was very obviously both personally a saint and his writings are extremely holy and he is a clear example of holiness. But there's a reason they waited until after the civil war was over, after the Franco dictatorship had fallen and after all of his family had died to begin the canonization mm. process. Because mm. if you start out with a young Catholic, you know, noble family, um, everyone's in the army, you know, very, I mean they became nationalists later. I wouldn't necessarily call them that at the beginning of the war yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you start with that family, right? And then, you know, his, he dies in 1938 before the war ends. He has no idea that the cause his family is fighting for is going to turn into a brutal dictatorship. He might have mm-hmm. ideas about, you know, he definitely addresses politics in his writings and he makes it clear, like, there's no good option right now there is complete disregard for the dignity of the human person on all sides. Mm-hmm. So he, he's very clear about that, but he, he doesn't know what it becomes. And it's the church's yeah. responsibility to know what, what comes, right? Yeah. And so the church needs to take on this, this discernment role of, okay, it can be true that he is a saint in heaven, but it would not be helpful to anyone to give the implication that yeah. we are endorsing everything that came after in his family, mm-hmm. in his community, in the tradition of the church that upheld him. So yeah. at its best, you know, I think, the role that canonization can play is, is discerning between those things. It doesn't always do that very well, but it can. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. culturally it would be very helpful to adopt that same attitude of the distinction between like, this person is obviously holy. It might not be helpful to share them as an example. Um, I, you know, I think that this idea of like the non-disclosure you were saying, like the humility um, is helpful to me in approaching that question because saints are fundamentally a testament to the mercy of God. Like, there are plenty mm-hmm. of people who are in heaven who are not, good examples of public virtue (laughs) there are and that is what mercy is like god Mm -hmm. sees differently than we do and unfortunately we need to promote saints with a human eye and we can't you know we should see everyone the way that god does but we need to understand when we are evangelizing that that's like the next step you can't start there (laughs) so i think for me this idea of you know the saint you will never see them proudly proclaim that they are holy you will always see them say anything good in me is from god and my goal is to get rid of me so i can have god um that emptiness like that i mean 
it's amazing. The more saints you read, the more similar they sound toward the end of their lives, which is fascinating because yeah. they do all have these very different personalities and they're, they are wonderfully diverse, as I think C.S. Lewis says. Like, the saints are very, very different from each other. But when you read, especially mystics, like when you read people who have deep spiritual lives, the closer you get to the end, the more they all sound the same, which is like God alone, nothing but love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the saints are just many, many different flavors of that one message, I think. Yeah. Quien a Dios tiene, nada le falta. Literally, yes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology's Season 1, and special thanks to Catherine Addington. I would like to again thank my sponsors, Whippenstock Publishers, Give Us This Day, The Institute for Christian Socialism, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, Where Peter Is, and the Juan Diego Network. I would also like to thank our special uh, featured sponsor for today, Commonweal Magazine, and also remind you that all listeners to Folk Phenomenology are eligible for a subscription to Commonweal Magazine for only $9.95, and everyone is eligible for a free subscription if you're a student or recent graduate. The friends of the show are the Commonweal Podcast. Among our uh, featured uh, sponsors today, we also have some uh, friends from their media. The Glorious Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosley, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Kush Classics. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to our friends and also to our sponsors and especially to Commonweal Magazine and some of the writing by Catherine Addington in Commonweal Magazine that you'll find there. You'll also find a tip jar. And in this episode and the one to follow, I would actually um, in particular like to sort of earmark tips for anyone who is interested and funding the translation of next week's episode to consider leaving us um, a tip. We don't need uh, too much, uh, but it is not within the operating budget of the show. But the reason I say this is that next week's episode is very exciting because it is going to be a Spanish language episode uh, with the Mexican philosopher Rodrigo Guerra Lopez on el ser y la persona, being and the person. The conversation I had with Rodrigo was very, in some senses, uh, accessible and basic, yet at the same time moved very carefully through some philosophical distinctions and conversations about what does it mean exactly to be a person? What is the concept of the person? And gently rolling into some questions about personalism, philosophical anthropology, love, and so much more. It's a powerful conversation, and I believe that it is something that I would like to be able to share to the listeners in English, although it will be in Spanish, sponsored and really boosted by the Juan Diego Network, which is based in Mexico. 
And I'm really looking forward to having uh, more of a presence in Latin American and uh, Spanish language media. But if you would like to uh, be able to read a transcript of our discussion, I believe that we have a wonderful translator here uh, at Folk Phenomenology, who you've just heard, who I would love to be able to hire to conduct the translation of that interview with Rodrigo from Spanish into English. So, um, usually I mentioned that the tip jar is fundraising for season two, but for this week and for the following, I will earmark this period of time uh, for um, putting aside some funds to see if we might be able to afford to provide an English transcription so that in addition to sharing content in Spanish, uh, we can also uh, offer that content to our wonderful listeners in English. Please share this episode and subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform. Also follow us on social media. You can find Catherine Addington on Twitter, I know. Um, I'll make sure to include her Twitter handle in the show notes. Um, every bit of digital boosting and support really does help and really goes a long way in continuing to really just introduce this show uh, to the world. Next week, I've already talked about, uh, I'll be talking to Rodrigo Guerra Lopez about uh, being in the person in Spanish. Um, I've already arranged for the intro and outro to primarily be in English, uh, but the core interview is 100% in Spanish. And uh, I've given a few notes there about my excitement for it and also some ways in which we might be able to make this available to our wonderful English-speaking uh, community. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Sam Rocha. To find out more about me and my work, please see samrocha.com. The final note that I made in today's interview with Catherine Addington was a verse stolen from St. Teresa of Avila from her famous um, poem, Notes to Herself. I think they're bookmark scribblings that opens with the famous Nada te turbe, nada te espanta. Let nothing um, trouble you, let nothing scare you. In the middle of those verses is Quien a Dios tiene, nada le falta. Whosoever has God lacks in nothing. This poetic verse from Avila, which Catherine ends her interview by affirming, is for me another way to enter perhaps more deeply into the meaning of this show's motto, Dilexi Mundo, love the world, to delight in the world, which is to delight with a sense of peace, with a sense of lacking in nothing. So in that spirit, in this attempt at translation with you through the simple act of communication and voice and call and response, 
I encourage you all to go out and love the world. Dilexi Mundo. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting out of the word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. It's where you find it. Mm -hmm. It's where you find love. Mm -hmm. is where you find it. And you don't know where you know where it'll carry you. And it is a terrifying thing. Love it is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. And I'm through the eyes of our ears, we see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.